We would like to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to... I used to play piano podcast. I almost forgot what it was called. It's been that long. <laughs> it has been that long. It, I think every hiatus we take, we get longer and longer, longer and longer. longer. But we haven't just been busy. Well, we have been busy, but we haven't been idle. No. We've been recording a bunch of interviews with various artists and musicians and music lovers. Specialists. <laughs> Yeah, um, which we have pre-recorded a few of those and we'll be putting them out over the next couple of months as well. So mm. hopefully you'll be hearing from us a bit more frequently too. Yeah, which is because we know how much you miss us all. We know you miss us, <laughs> so we're doing our best. So on the show today, we'll be talking to Jeremy Woolhouse, a composer and Alexander Technique teacher, which we recorded a couple of months ago. And you had a few lessons with Jeremy, haven't you? I did. I've had a lot of lessons with Jeremy over the years. Um, back when I was doing my undergrad and shortly after my first injury, I thought I'd better try something new. So I tried the Alexander Technique and it was quite successful for me in ways that I hadn't thought would be because I, I went for my wrists. But actually what I found out was that I never really got much of that back pain that a lot of pianists get, mm. but I was getting um, tension headaches and yeah. actually doing, that was the first thing that changed for me before any of my technique improved and my posture got better and things like that. Um, I stopped getting these tension headaches, which was really interesting. And I think just, it, I didn't think my posture was bad at all before I went to see him. <laughs> you know, I was a ballerina for 16 years. I had pretty good dancer's posture, but I was holding a lot and being quite tense so in ways that I didn't even know so yeah it definitely um, was an interesting experience for Mm. me I guess the interview was an interesting experience it was it was very interesting (laughs) I forgot I guess because I know Jeremy so well having done lessons with him for so long I forgot that it can be quite intense sitting in a room with someone who's so poised and has this fantastic posture and Mm. for some stupid reason we declined to sit on the couch (laughs) because he sits on the floor he's just he's really well supported (laughs) we sat on the floor in possibly the most awkward positions (laughs) and I think it was halfway through where we both just collapsed and we're going we can't do this anymore (laughs) which is very funny so yeah the interview itself was really interesting very enlightening as well and I'm looking forward to hearing his recording his kindly given us permission to play one of his recordings that's right because he's also a composer and we've Mm. um he's very kindly given us one of his recordings to play as well yeah great um we've also got our monthly music segment and of course your favorite scale of the let's call it episode now because it's not really the episode (laughs) oh damn i forgot that we have an official theme song for it every time yeah (laughs) i always forget that too this one's more fun too now this one's more fun yeah (laughs) All right. So, Zara, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you saw or what you've been doing music-wise? I mean, you've done a lot, so maybe pick a highlight two. Oh, highlight two? Okay. (laughs) I mean, in terms of actual gigs, I did heaps of gigs up towards the end of last year, Mm. um, including an all-inclusive accessible festival for featuring artists with disabilities, which Ah, was pretty cool. cool. Um, But... Um, yeah, it's a long time ago and I haven't thought about it for a while. I don't think I can really talk, but maybe in the future we could talk a bit more about that, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but recently I went to see the Stonington Symphony in the park, 
which was amazing. I went to their final night, I think it was, um, and they had Vicar and Linda Bull performing, who are my favourite singers of all time. My mum used to love them. I love Vicar and Linda. She'd be like, put on a bit of Vicar and Linda, guys. <laughs> they're just, I, they're such iconic Australian singers. Yeah or Tongan singers and yeah. they're, they're just beautiful voices like mm. no one can sing like them they're, mm. they're just incredible and I see them live any chance I can get so when I found out they were playing down the road from where I live in the park yeah and then also the bonus was I got to see the Stonington Symphony play as well yeah it was a little bit of a um a tricky gig because I think they had way more people than expected that night. Yeah. I have a feeling there was a lot of Vicar and Linda fans there that might not normally go to a classical yeah, concert because right. there's a lot of people talking during the first half, which was right. a bit disappointing. Um, but I think also the sound didn't wasn't quite wasn't loud enough for people at the back to hear. Yeah. During the first half. The second half they rectified that. Mm. But other than that, the orchestra played amazingly. They're a beautiful orchestra and it's I love that kind of, you know, local music. You don't need to spend money and go and see like super expensive orchestras you, it, when they do things like this in the park it's free yeah. accessible to everyone families were there you know i love seeing little kids get up and dance they did yeah. um <laughs> the sorcerer's apprentice oh no <laughs> they had a um a little little girl and a little boy were up dancing doing you know bum bum oh that's so, <laughs> so cute. cute is that the right tune <laughs> kind of close enough. I think you're right. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean. Fantasia. Yeah. So yeah. it was, yeah, it was really, really fun. And what else have I done recently? I can't even think. That's probably about it. What have you yeah. been doing this month? I really hadn't seen much. I went and saw the Australian Chamber Orchestra in concert together with the Estonian Philharmonic Chamber Choir. Uh, it was a really, really great concert and they did work predominantly by Avo Pert and Bach. Nice. Um, and it was just a really good mix. It was all choral, um, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> but sort of religious-based choral, Yes, I guess. yeah. And um, they did his Berliner, the Avopert's Berliner Mass, which oh, I think beautiful. is one of his more well-known works. And it was just really eth quite ethereal would be a word to describe it. Yeah. Like if you close your eyes and just sort of let the sound wash over you. It's just really fantastic. You just get transported to another place. I love um, moments like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's and it's something I think those sorts of choirs achieve quite well, especially in that part of the world. It's um, a specialty that you'll find over there. And so I love it when they travel all the way out to Australia to do these sorts of things. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, so that was a really good concert. Um, what else? Besides that, nothing really. Did you see the Green Book? I did see the Green Book. Yeah. Uh, the um, film. What did you think? I thought it was, um, I don't know, I thought it was a good film. I think I, I, was, I was expecting maybe a little bit more classical music. Um, but I feel like it was sort of, as the critics say, the white saviour. Yeah, there was, it was, you know, the story of a, a black man told through a white man's eyes, which is yeah. it's a little bit jarring. And especially because I just wanted to see more of the music. Like yeah. The, but they did put a lot of the music in and, you know, so for those of you who haven't heard of it or haven't seen it, it's about the American pianist Don Shirley, mm -hmm. who was an African-American classically trained pianist in the 60s, I think, mm. who was kind of told by the record label that he couldn't play white music, basically. So mm -hmm. he had to do this um, kind of blend. He had a trio and they did kind of a blend of, um, you know, jazz and classically kind of, I don't even know 
how to describe it, but it's great music as well. Yeah. I love love his music and um but it was, you know, in the movie he talked about how what he really wanted to play was Chopin. Mm. And there's a, a really lovely scene where Mahershala Ali, the actor, um, they're in a bar and they, he just starts playing the Chopin Etude Winter Wind, yeah. which is oh, such an awesome piece yes. as well. And seeing, you know, I, it was quite powerful as well. You know, I, I really wish they focused more on him in that storytelling mm. and told it through his eyes. But I guess, you know, is Hollywood is what it is. Yeah, I did make Dan start learning Winter Wind. <laughs> is that where? <laughs> yeah, that's why he's been learning it. Yeah, he was um, as we we're warming up today. He was playing playing it, it a little bit, but very nice. Yeah, it's such an awesome piece. And at the moment, I'm out injured, so I can't play anything. Mm. And I would not have the remotest amount of time to learn a piece like that at the moment. But when you have a partner who <laughs> is a very highly skilled pianist, so the you great thing is you like can be that. like, oi. Play me some music, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he's rubbing his head in disgust. <laughs> this is one of the rare times that he's actually here while we're Hi, recording. Dan. Everyone say hello to Dan. Hello, Dan. Hi, Dan. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's – is that the number um, – Opus 10 number four? No, it's 25 number 11. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. I want to try and learn it. I've never done many etudes. Me neither. And I'd... it's something that I really should probably do. Um, I think it's good for developing your agility, especially because so of them, so many of them are so demanding. Yeah, I only learned a couple of them. Yeah, but years ago. So yeah, I'm getting back so maybe we can we can challenge each other. Oh. Well, I'm entering into a challenge <laughs> with Jan Liston. That's probably a bad idea. No, but. do it. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of this year, we'll have to present the nature <laughs> to each other. Talking about Australian culture of learning something so slowly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which yeah. was not in this episode that we're talking no. about now. So we've just finished recording another interview with a mystery artist mm. who is... Um, oh, can we give hints so that listeners mm. can guess who we might have on? His instrument is his voice. <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> great. Like too much of a hint. Well, I mean, that, that only narrows it down to all of the vocalists great. in that's what we our want. country. Yeah. <laughs> um, what else? We'll be, start, we'll be looking at some works by a composer whose surname starts with S. And who... Um, <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of the most politically correct way to say this. Whose uh, partner or his wife was a trailblazing feminist composer who was ahead of her time and constantly gets overlooked and we should do an episode on her, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's all. Three hints is what we're going to get. That's it. You. That's coming up in the next couple of months. Stay tuned. You better stay How's tuned. How's that from Sizzle? <laughs> Sizzle and Hype. Spice. Hype. <laughs> all right, so we better get on to the main part of our um, episode. As Sarah said, we caught up with Jeremy Warhouse, who is a composer, jazz musician and Alexander Technique teacher or specialist. Um, Sarah, do you want to introduce him a little bit? Yeah, I'll read a little bit of a bio. Jeremy Woolhouse is a pianist, composer and teacher of Alexander Technique based in Melbourne, Australia. He is a graduate of the Victorian College of the Arts and has also completed a four-year intensive teacher training at the School of FM Alexander Studies. He has worked as a professional performer and piano teacher since 1998 and has maintained a private Alexander teaching practice in Melbourne since 2006. Jeremy is currently registered with the Australian Society of Teachers of the Alexander Technique and is currently serving as the chair of their committee. 
So without further ado, let's have a listen to the interview. Thank you for joining us, Jeremy. Welcome. Yes, welcome. Um, today we're going to be talking a little bit about Alexander Technique and Jeremy has very appreciatively given up his time to tell us a little bit about it. First of all, could you give us a short explanation of what Alexander Technique is? Well, Alexander Technique is a way of moving and doing things with ease and comfort. So it's a technique kind of like, you know, piano technique is about how you play the piano. Alexander Technique is about how you use yourself, how you uh, do your work, how you move, how you sit, stand, walk. Um, people coming for Alexander Technique lessons can bring in anything that they're interested in doing and learn a way of doing it that is more constructive, like um, brings more ease, more confidence, more comfort, deals with a lot of pain um, issues that come up. Um, pianists are pretty good for coming in with RSI and back pain problems. Yep. Yes, we <laughs> can <Okay>. relate. <laughs> Both relate to that one. <laughs> uh, so Alexander Technique is looking at what is it that you're doing that might be contributing to this situation and what can we do differently? And there's a whole um, process that we can go through to start recognizing things that we're doing that are working well and not working so well and changing those. Would you describe it as kind of, I don't know, I don't think passive is the right word, but you know, you, you could go to a physiotherapist and say, I've got a sore back and they treat the pain or they, they tell you, you know, they give you a set of exercises, but there's something different about the approach from the Alexander Technique. Could you speak a bit more to that? Mm, absolutely. So the student coming to Alexander Technique is is not passive. I make them work. <laughs> because Again, I can, can confirm this. <laughs> <laughs> well, what we really want is for the student to be able to use the technique independently. Um, and that's essential because it's not just something that you do for five minutes a day or an hour a day, it's something that you actually want to be doing the whole time is to be able to use yourself in a positive and constructive way. So it's a real education and it has this slightly confusing crossover in that the session itself is therapeutic, but the process is educational. We're retraining, um, basically trying to get back to where we were with as kids, mm. real spontaneous, natural coordination, no problems, no RSI, just <laughs> happily, fully engaged in whatever it is that we're doing. Mm. That's funny. I was thinking that as you were giving the explanation of what Alexander Technique, it's just where along, where in our lives do we lose the, our, our natural state of just mm. how we hold ourselves and how we use our body. It's very interesting. How did you first get into Alexander Technique and how did you become a teacher? Well, I started out as a, an aspiring pianist doing some ridiculously long hours per day at the piano and got a pretty sore back. That's <laughs> pretty significant back pain. And when the more conventional methods all failed, um, I sought out Alexander Technique. I was getting, you know, success in terms of treatment would relieve the pain, but as soon as I got back to the piano, the pain would come back again. And so 
I attended some Alexander Technique lessons and there were two things that just revolutionized my whole approach. And the first one was a recognition that what I was doing was contributing to the problem. I'd always thought it was my bad back or, you know, something that I had inherited. Yeah, right. That's so true. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it was always I was looking for somebody to fix me and never thought that there was something that I was doing that was actually contributing to this issue. And so the second thing was just a total empowerment when I realized that actually I could influence it. I could change the way that I was sitting at the instrument. And that also had never occurred to me that (laughs) there is a different way of doing this. It's, you know, it seems so obvious in hindsight, but I, yeah, I just didn't, didn't see it. Um, so stuck in inside of it. Uh, so that started my journey of Alexander Technique and I very quickly came to find a much more positive relationship with the instrument and significantly reduced the pain that I was getting. Uh, as a sort of side effect, what started happening though is I, my speed started increasing because I was balanced, it had a different balance of tone in my hands. I'd got rid of a whole lot of excess tension. My tonal control increased my expressive qualities started to you know really change um and that excited me so much that when i'd got through college as an undergraduate and i was thinking of doing postgraduate study it seemed to me that pursuing more alexander technique study was the most relevant thing and that's where i went to train to be a teacher Hmm to continue to develop my own use of Alexander Technique at the, at the instrument. But, you know, I kind of got inspired by seeing what was happening with other people, the people I was working with. And that led me to really, yeah, want to really facilitate other people's change and development, really help other people. And yeah, that's what's been, you know, shaping my career now as a as an Alexander Technique teacher. Do you use the term technician at all or is it teacher no. is more appropriate? <laughs> no, no, I haven't used that term. <laughs> that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, <laughs> technician. Well, it's, yeah, it's pretty accurate, I guess. It's, it is part, like you said before, part educational, part therapeutic, part something else mystical, I think, in mm. a way. Um, I'm really interested in talking a bit more about how long did you put off going to Alexander Technique when you were experiencing that pain or how far in your musical kind of journey or growth were you at that point when you first decided to seek help? Uh, So I'd done one music degree and then I was transiting into another music degree. Wow. I was changing instruments. (laughs) I started the first degree I did was as a trombonist and then I spent a lot of time by myself trying to become a pianist. Right. right. And yeah, that's when it got critical. And had you, do you think in retrospect or hindsight, is that something that you probably could have gone to sooner, but you didn't for some reason? I didn't because I just really wasn't, I, I was ignorant of it. I didn't, yeah, you know, right. didn't know about its potential. And even after beginning it, you know, I still didn't know its potential. Yeah. It just sort of 
unravels over time as you sort of get into the the practice of it um and unfortunately you know it's there's just a not a great exposure to it you know it wasn't it wasn't an option until i just you know heard about it yeah right wasn't long after hearing about it that it you know i started to go oh hang on a minute that could really help me yeah <laughs> that's yeah yeah um so you've taught piano in the past as well um mm. so i'm curious to know how your training in alexander technique and knowing a lot about human physiology um you've got obviously got your skeleton in your studio as well mm-hmm. um i'm interested to know how that did it change the way you taught or maybe you hadn't been teaching before then but how do you balance knowing so much about physiology and what's useful for young learners and also making lessons enjoyable and getting it all in. I know when I teach, it's really hard to kind of balance um, Mm. that technique side of it and then just getting them to be able to complete something successfully musically and have that positive experience. Mm. Well, every time you play, you're using some kind of technique like piano technique. And that technique is either really positive or it's not so positive. And when every time you play, you're using some kind of coordination and that coordination is either positive or not so positive. And the times where uh, we need to attend to that sort of coordination is when it's really interfering with the ability for the student to use their technique and to engage and enjoy the music. And the times when we don't need to address it so much is when it's spontaneously happening really well. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And do you find that younger learners can pick that up quicker? Or do you find that, because, you know, I've obviously you've taught people from a range of experience. Mm-hmm. Do you find if it's something that they're learning for the first time, you know, I'm thinking back to basic piano things, you teach them not to curve the knuckles or not to flex their knuckles. Um, do you find that they're more receptive to that when they're in the yeah. early stages of learning as opposed to when they've been doing it for 20 years and coming to you with a problem? It's much easier, I think, to train a good technique than to change bad habits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, you know, somebody coming for early lessons and if their hand shape is naturally really good, I won't talk about shaping the hand because then they'll just contort themselves to try and conform mm. to my instruction yeah um and if we're as you know piano teachers if we're really smart about the way we give that instruction we can uh, um, avoid the problems that happen down the track where somebody comes in with some really tense hands and it's like but my piano teacher told me i should always keep my fingers curved yeah <laughs> and well yeah that works for some times but you also need to be able to not have them curved mm. you know if you're doing a large interval like a, a tenth or something curved fingers is not going to really help yeah. <laughs> or a chord that's involving some bunch of black notes um yet the teacher's been you know uh very good in trying to you know um educate that a you know a, a hand shape appropriate for playing a scale or something and the student is diligently taking all that instruction and applying it everywhere because they don't know any better at that stage mm-hmm. so one thing that uh, in teaching that alexander technique has really informed 
is a much bigger picture when I'm looking at what the student is doing I'm really watching everything there not just their hand shape but their whole body shape and if they're screwing themselves up to try and get that hand shape right that's the wrong instruction that I've given them yeah. about yeah. trying to get that hand shape and I need to shape, you know phrase it some different way um, likewise if that technique that they're using isn't actually creating a musical tone on the instrument we need to re um, rephrase the instruction so that it's a constructive thing um, on three levels I always sort of talk about three aspects to performance teaching or practice one of those is coordination one of them is the piano technique or the kind of interface with the instrument and the other is the musicality the artistry of what we're doing and those three things have to be balanced sometimes you'll need more attention to one than another but if one of those gets dropped and left out the other two are going to inevitably suffer if someone's not got you know reasonable technique their musicality is compromised and their coordination can't be that great likewise if someone's got no musical ideas doesn't matter how good their technique is or <laughs> <Yeah>. coordination is <laughs> but of course the one that gets dropped the most i think is coordination it's not within our traditional paradigm of um but the pedagogy of, of music teaching it kind of gets left to you figure it out on, <laughs> on your own because the teachers don't have the education to know how to instruct that well, so that, the, yeah. that's so true i just remembered this moment of clarity that i had coming to you for lessons a few years ago um where you got me to draw a picture of a skeleton sitting at the piano mm. and um i did it and i was pretty happy with myself all things considered and you said there's a really big controversial area here you've, you've forgotten to draw a pelvis <laughs> just like the, and little things and I say this in students all the time as well like not knowing that the fifth joint in their thumb not fifth sorry one two three third joint I don't know how many I can't count but um the joint in their thumb comes all the way down to the base of the wrist and that was something that I'd never obviously you know it's there we have opposable thumbs but we don't have a visual image of it in our heads when we picture mm. ourselves playing and just even knowing those kind of things like conceptualizing that I'm not a right angled stick yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. you know you have all these different components to your body that change the way you move I think is so important and you're right like we're not educated teachers aren't educated in the physiology of playing um, students aren't taught that way I think it's it's something that's really important mm. Um, so what are some of the most dramatic improvements you've seen Alexander Technique um, have on a student? Ah, uh, well, it's pretty encouraging <laughs> <laughs> because I've seen some wonderful things. Um, one that comes to mind is a student who was um, off work for, I don't know, three or six months because of um, RSI, um, unable to work, unable to play sport, unable to play his instrument, and really frustrated really you know life was going so downhill and very quickly we were able to retrain that he got back to work he got back into playing sport he got back to playing his instrument and went from being debilitated to actually thriving in in life in everything that he was doing having a great time um, 
and he'd struggled with a whole bunch of other things and really attributed that change to Alexander Technique. Um, and always when someone goes through that kind of transition, I handball the compliment back to them saying, well, yeah, you, you did a, diligently applied what we were working on. Um, it is a, a discipline to actually use Alexander Technique and it's a practice like, um, you know, like musical practice or martial arts practice. It takes some, some training, but some application mm. as well. Yeah, I guess it is what you bring to it yourself as a student as much yeah. as what you provide as a teacher. Yeah, totally. And I, I think, um, you know, I'm really interested to know how long these kind of transformations often take. I know for myself, mm-hmm. I think it was probably at least five or six years before I could stand up out of a chair. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. long. maybe I, I think I'm probably one of the slower learners, but I had some pretty ingrained habits in there. But for someone starting out, maybe listening to this thinking, oh, I I have pain when I play, I would be interested in looking at Alexander Technique. What, what kind of advice can you give them in terms of what they need to expect and prepare for in terms of that journey? Mm, well, my own experience, three lessons was, was a revolution. It just changed everything mm-hmm. and turned it from being a downhill progression into an uphill one. Um, student I was just talking about he had pretty much dealt with all these things and got back to work within three months wow um and I remember him saying saying to me well I kind of got what I wanted out of it but I keep on improving so I'm going to keep coming until (laughs) as long as I keep improving and eventually I can't remember now how long he continued for but eventually he got to the point where he was so confident that he could continue himself mm. that, you know, that's the kind of student I consider a graduate when, <laughs> when they're really confident, you know, they've made me redundant. They, they're yeah. confident that they can continue to improve themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so really it is very individual because we all come with different challenges. We've got different obstacles to overcome, different habits if something's been really ingrained or we've not got a history of kind of challenging thought patterns movement patterns or just need more assistance through it it's a longer um you know it's uh, a more um, ongoing process but even just one session somebody you know sometimes can get a revolutionary idea so a starting point for people i just say turn up to a session you can experience it yourself and get some idea of what potential it has for you, what it uh, is going to mm, possibly influence immediately and over the long term. I mean, I still go to lessons because I still discover that I can learn more and go deeper. It's like learning music in that you mm. can just keep going deeper and deeper mm. into it. It's this infinite thing. That's right, yeah. <laughs> it's always better when you've got someone to share it with and to, you know, they say problem shared, it's a problem yeah, halved. Yeah. And mm. you could play the same piece to four different people and get something different from each of them. So I'm sure it's quite a really, that's yeah. a nice analogy. It's always a lot more fun when you can, you know, share the journey. Yeah. What do your lessons entail? Is it is it something you, you start them playing at their instrument or... Um, and sort of assess from there or how does it work? Yeah, if somebody's come in with a specifically 
um, piano-related injury, for example, then that's one of the first things that I want to see because that's one of the most relevant things. Mm. And usually after that, we sort of step away from the piano for a moment. Or a couple Um, of years in my case. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We we approach it in two ways. One is from the, the ground up. So we work on really basic elements of coordination. So if we want to work on the fundamentals of where do you get the support for your hands when you're playing it's kind of easier to do that away from the instrument and go we'll just sit in the chair and there's your sit bones you know base of your poles there's your spine there's your head and how can we influence this and find a positive orientation there and um, work things you know from the from that bottom up on the other hand we work from the top down and take whatever performance you've got and find ways of influencing that becoming just a little more positive about well whilst you're playing that is there a possibility that you could move a bit and if some of that movement could have you know you could bring a certain quality in your body in the same way that you're bringing a quality to your music and that means that you've got both things one is getting all the principles and the foundation and the other is something that is accessible that you can actually use in an instant. So you don't have to go through a, a long process to be able to use it. You can use Alexander technique in an instant. Mm. Um, but to get the, you know, the profound impact of it, you know, paying attention to some of those fundamentals is a really worthwhile exploration, I think. Hmm. I realize we haven't talked much about what the basic principles of Alexander Technique are. Can you maybe talk a little bit about them? Yeah. Um, one is that there is a coordinative principle, we call it primary control, something to do with the way that the head and torso um, function together. There's a relationship there which determines the function of everything else. We see this in all vertebrates so if we get that central coordination functioning well then there's a good chance that everything else can function well and a process um, that I teach new students is ABC work on getting a little bit of availability between the head and the spine and some buoyancy the A is for availability B for buoyancy so that when we're getting a little bit of freedom or release that it's not something that takes us into a collapse but something that takes us into some kind of upright positive poise and then some continuity through the whole body into the activity that we're doing and those abc availability buoyancy and continuity relate to what fm alexander who's the founder of the technique um, talked about when he was talking about directions for primary control So we're looking at a qualitative change, a way of thinking that promotes a good quality and that quality will give rise then to some different positions and movements um, and that'll increase our, um, improves the way we use ourselves and that then improves the functioning of whatever it is that we're doing. So another kind of fundamental principle is that 
the way we use ourselves affects the way we function. As we're talking, I'm very conscious yeah, that I'm sitting in the most <laughs> uncomfortable position, trying not to move at all of fear of um, knocking the microphone and making background noise. This was oh, not dear. planned very well. Um, so speaking of, we were talking a bit before we started recording about um, research and what's available, what kind of research is out there. Can you talk a bit about what kind of research there is for Alexander Technique, um, why there isn't more and how that's impacting people's access to it? So mm. you have time to get political if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> there is some um, really strong documented evidence uh, for Alexander Technique, some clinical trials that have had a really remarkable impacts some of the studies have involved chronic back pain and chronic neck pain there's been a really fascinating one about um, parkinson's disease right mm. there are some current researches going on about balance and um, elderly people mm -hmm. um, so there's some really interesting things that are happening and the results that are coming back are really quite amazing. One of the key findings that is really significant um, with something like the chronic back pain study was that the people in the study were able to maintain improvements over a long term. And that's, that's huge. Yeah. yeah. Like over um, one of the studies, the one on neck pain um, went over a year and the other interventions um, had uh, immediate effect, but not the sustained effect of Alexander Technique. And that really um, empowers people. So one of the things about chronic pain is it's really debilitating. You feel so useless and mm. being able to do something positive about it um, is a really meaningful finding in, the, in those researches. There's... Um, you know, political situation at the <laughs> moment around the evidence for Alexander Technique that uh, the government um, review of uh, private health funds has decided that it's insufficient. And the um, framework that they used to uh, assess that um, disqualified research that was more than five years old and certain other parameters that meant some of the wonderful research <laughs> that about Alexander Technique yeah. wasn't counted. And it's just a, a matter of numbers in that there isn't enough research around Alexander Technique um, to fulfill the, the requirements for that um, uh, qualification that the government was looking for in that review. And that just comes back to funding and exposure of Alexander Technique. We're a society in Australia of 140 teachers and that size society you know, can't sustain a whole lot of you know, new research coming out every year. Um, so unfortunately, it's, it's just uh, we're a little behind the eight ball there. Um, and the situation is actually going to, with the, those reforms, is going to impact on the ability to run more researchers, um, more clinical trials in institutions that are receiving public health uh, yeah. um, 
uh, rebates through private health uh, funds, um, which is uh, unfortunate because those you know trials that have been done, all you know, the conclusions always say this really warrants more research. Yes, this really yeah. is worth following up on. The findings are so encouraging that all of the researchers are saying yes we should do more mm. uh, yeah that's in i guess in our local context do you know if there's much more movement internationally as well in terms of legislation or um, research uh, like that? i believe that in europe it's sort of a little in the opposite they're getting more inclusive with alexander right. technique um, and there is um, more integration of Alexander Technique into places like public hospitals, mm. uh, which is really exciting because it's such a complementary thing to um, other clinical conditions, clinical um, treatments. Uh, if somebody's had some procedure to be able to then um, sustain the recovery and address any kind of postural influences on what that underlying cause might have been is a a really fantastic thing to be doing which i think is is probably like a complex thing for a health system to be interested in because a lot of their treatments want to treat the here and now you know mm. triage system basing you know on what can we fix as quickly as possible get people off the system as quickly as we can and that kind of long-term work perhaps hasn't been acknowledged and not just in this kind of field but I think in wider me medicine as well in terms of mental health looking at long-term treatments mm -hmm. for people rather than quick fixes that then just people end up in a cycle of in and out of hospital I think it's a really exciting time to see that that's changing in that mm. context and hopefully maybe that can influence Australia as well in the future I noticed when you mentioned the research a lot of the trials were about um weren't specific to music and I know mm. the technique wasn't specifically developed for music either, but it does seem to be something that's associated with performance. Um, is there much, you know, integration of Alexander Technique into performance that you know of, um, you know, through universities or um, orchestras and things like that? Yeah, there's um, so many leading music institutions or performing arts institutions that include Alexander Technique in the curriculum that um, no, um, in like locally our major orchestras have got you know some Alexander Technique component even if it's only a workshop once a year but um, there is yeah a real strong support for it and the I think the reason for that is that when you make a change in your coordination, you're changing the balance of the, of the muscle tone in your body and a, a good instrument is designed to respond to changes in muscle tone. Yeah. Mm. So a small change in muscle tone in a, um, in a high profile performer will have a, an amazing impact. And musicians hear that and they feel it. Yeah. There is also, you know, so much uh, that, you know, the physical demands are so high that musicians really feel the effect when they've got a little more comfort in themselves. That means that 
their whole performance confidence improves. Mm. So it addresses things on a whole lot of different levels. Things that are actually really difficult to clinically measure. (laughs) Things like performance and performance comfort, you know. Um, And fortunately, you know, the the artistic community is actually more interested in that um, anecdotal research. Yes, yeah people's uh, own experience than in you know clinical physical figures yeah so the precedent in music institutions is is a lot stronger there i often find that because i work obviously as a music therapist and we do kind of branch or balance between the creative world and the um medical kind of clinical world and i do find with us as well we have this kind of weird situation particularly when looking towards funding where we want to be getting funding for the clinical work that we're doing from hospitals from organizations and from government related to healthcare. but then on the other side we often neglect the fact that we are musicians as well and that we we can occupy that art space too and that a lot of music therapy programs are funded through arts based things rather than health based mm. things and that that kind of a whole area of arts health whether it's um the health of the artist or using arts for health and well-being for general population i think is a really interesting kind of intersection that is still kind of becoming more accepted and the importance of it is still becoming known i think which is a it's an exciting time to be involved i think mm, absolutely it is i think that there is a global shift to uh, away from what's happened over the last couple of centuries which things have been getting more and more specialized and compartmentalized into things which are getting more and more integrated um i think that is something that well it's a it's another fundamental principle of alexander technique that you know we don't want to be exclusive in our attention but inclusive and that's starting to happen in in science in mainstream medical they're starting to realize that actually these specialists need to be able to integrate a bigger picture you know need need to see not only their special speciality um, presented in front of them but the whole patient and the exactly context yeah. in which it's in Mm. And it's it's more. I think it would be more interesting for them as well, in a way, to find out yeah. more of that context just from a clinical perspective. Unfortunately, it's also a little bit threatening because it's <laughs> that's a, true. <laughs> it, you know, it kind of when you get to this 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 level of expertise, you're the you know the real expert. But as soon as you start to open it out, you become the real novice, and you start to realize that your expertise is only one small bit. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I think the uh, more that people can <laughs> accept that would make better medical professionals in general. That's my opinion. But mm. um, speaking of, um, I forgot the word was now we had a threatening, I think it was. Yeah. Have you noticed any um, stigma around injury and coming forward to seek help amongst people that you've worked with or the wider community? Um, well, the people who come to me are the people who are willing to take on a bit of responsibility and be proactive. Mm. They know from the way that I promote the technique, you know, everyone comes via my website pretty much or they've comes by word of mouth. And so they know that they're coming to actually engage in their own um, 
journey towards better functioning not just be treated um, but I do get people who say yeah I put up with it for so long and just decided like it's not working yeah. <laughs> you know, this pain no pain no gain thing that doesn't really work does it oh, no I think it's one of the biggest lies that we've been told yeah. you know that you should be suffering for your art or that yeah. kind of stuff I know I think you and I both know people who've given up a career in music because of injury and they haven't sought help or they might have started to seek help and not gotten the results that they wanted and felt that pressure which is really damaging I think and Mm. I think the more that we can talk about it and make awareness that yeah it's pretty common I don't know any statistics on injuries in performers but I imagine that they're a lot more it affects about 80 percent of really professional musicians have got number. chronic pain I, i've read that statistic That's somewhere crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it is normalized mm. um and i remember at college being told oh yeah you get pain oh, that's you know just part of it um and sometimes you do see people wearing it as a as a badge you know a badge of honor it's like yeah yeah you know i've practiced so much that i've got you know this rsi now it's <laughs> sort of like if you haven't got it you can't be doing enough work man it's yeah it's, uh, it's really funny the, the attitudes they have and i know when i was going through my injuries and stuff i did feel like the attitude of the university it was kind of like well it's your fault you've done something wrong to get to this point not that technically like if i don't know could they be culpable for the way that they've taught me? Like, I do remember, mm. you know, the practice rooms didn't have appropriate stools to practice in, that they weren't, oh, half of them weren't adjustable. Mm. So I used to have to carry my phone books around. And nowadays you can't do that because there's no phone books anymore. <laughs> <laughs> something, you know? something an iPad can't do. <laughs> yeah. Apple need to invent a bigger iPad. Um, yeah, I just... I wonder, like, it, I find that that kind of aspect of it is really interesting, the idea that it's just so not talked about or if it is, it's you're either judged for having done something wrong or, as you were saying, Jeremy, that it's expected that you have an injury or that you come through that. Um, yeah, it's a really kind mm-hmm. of scary concept, but hopefully the more we talk about it, the more we can break that down and yeah. People, yeah. encourage people to go and seek help when they need it, I think. Yeah, I do recall having one, they did bring in one Alexander Technique mm. specialist in for one lecture in the three years that we were there. That's right, yeah, I think we did mm. have one. Which was interesting. They seemed to pick me out of the crowd because of my bad posture. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was asked to perform at the next one too. But I remember, you know, I I sorted out a little bit afterward and it was in, it did open up my eyes to just how everything is connected and then the difference that it, that it did make mm. in my own playing. Um, but I had to stop because of cost. So, um, yeah, it's very interesting hearing about it and um, bringing back all those memories of Alexander Technique. Yeah. So in addition to being an Alexander Technique technician, as Zara put it before, <laughs> <laughs> you're also a composer and performer. Do you... Do you think that Alexander Technique has impacted, has had an impact on your compositional style at all? Absolutely, absolutely. It, um, the practice of Alexander Technique, I'll, I'll call myself a practitioner. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
or you know, it's a it's a practice or a discipline, maybe. I don't know. Discipline seems fitting. Yeah, <laughs> as long as it's. Um, but that would make that... you a disciplinarian, which is. You have to be or, probably or a disciple. disciple. I don't disciple. Know. <laughs> <laughs> you go disciple. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, as long as it's not the kind of reprimand kind of discipline, but more no. like martial arts discipline. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's right. How there was a question. Be <laughs> oh, right. How so yeah, how does it, how does it affect my composition? It affects my whole um, attitude to life, my whole demeanor. I think. Uh, in that when I'm sitting to compose, I'm not driven by um, these habitual drives. You know, one of the things that Alexander Technique works so well at is seeing what a, what your hab- habit is and choosing not to respond to it uh, instead thinking about your coordination, what's functional right now, and then what do you really want? You might choose to still do the same thing that your habit was telling you to do, but if you do it consciously, you've got a choice over it, and it's a really decisive direction. So when I'm playing something, you know, uh, thinking, oh, this, this chord and this sound, there's kind of some habitual impulse to go and do this with it. And I go, yeah, or I could do that. Or if I just kind of resist that temptation for a moment and think about what is it that I really want, there's another option that that presents itself. That is really cool. (laughs) That's mind-blowing. What it is is an option that is more honest, more genuine, more true to actually who I am and myself right now. So... I'm not striving to um, fulfill any, um, what's the word, any stereotypes of genre or stereotypes of who I am as a performer, but actually do something which is really um, spontaneous, really genuine to this moment and myself. That's really, really cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I realize we haven't talked about what piece you're going to share with everyone. Um, are you still happy for us to use one of your recordings? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any anything in mind that you'd like to use? Uh, there's a piece called The Third Person. Yep. And that's one that I feel mm, probably the most satisfied with in terms <laughs> yeah, of its... Sure balance as a composition and uh, I thought that you know something that has a nice balance would be fitting to our conversation of course, yeah. um, between you know movement and um, rest and between dissonance and consonance um, the title itself is a is a literary reference to the third person as in not first person or second person, not you or me, but them or <laughs> it or he or she, something which is a little bit removed but is still part of what we need to include in our um, in ourselves, in our lives to be functional and integrated. Wow, that's mm. deep. <laughs> <laughs> Very connected. You can see where that 
fits in. Was that intentional or is it something well, you've thought about retrospectively since you wrote the piece? I think that it's... I, I can't say that it's uh, intentional other than that it's my intention to always be like that. Yeah. Mm. To always, you know, I'm always trying to be as integrated and as connected and as inclusive with my attention in terms of myself, in terms of my teaching, in terms of my performing and composing. Hmm. That's beautiful. Is this a solo piece as well, or is it one with the trio? Uh, duet. Duet. Mm. Oh, yeah, right. with the bass. Lovely. Oh, cool. And who's playing bass on it? The bass is Shannon Birchall. Lovely. Yeah.
Um, so we're almost at the end of the interview, I think. We've covered so much and there's so much more I want to talk about. Yeah. I just have, have to book in for a lesson. Um, <laughs> it's funny, when, right at the start when you were talking about, um, I think, the technique and just being careful of the way that you instruct a student to check like, not, that you're not giving a completely directive instruction that they're going to carry on and end up with you know mm. crooked hands because they're trying so hard to curve their fingers it it kind of blew my mind even that in a way that I, I, I already know this stuff why don't I do this you know? <laughs> which is I always love that kind of realization when you're like oh I, I did know this I've just been slack or I've not been thinking mm. it reminded me of the book I think he gave it to me indirect procedures mm. which is a really great book that that's by Pedro right by Pedro yeah. de Alcantara yes. yeah which talks a lot about um, and I think it's another one of those principles of Alexander Technique is that you're not sitting up straight or you're not moving like this, but you're just inviting that movement. And it'd be really, I'd love to do like a neurological study to see what happens in the brain when you're using, giving those indirect instructions to yourself. It would just mm. be fascinating to see how you just override those habitual pathways by just being a little bit gentle, which is it's a nice metaphor for life, mm. really, I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a last question for you today um, is a little bit about um, your career and your musicality and your musical identity. So one of the reasons we started this podcast was because we'd both trained as classical musicians, but then gone off and worked in different fields and felt like we were just losing touch with something that we'd worked for a lot of years on. So we was kind of just an excuse to kind of hold us accountable to play and to listen to music <laughs> to le- remember all the music theory and history that we yeah. learned as well so we wanted to ask um how do you as a alexander technique teacher slash technician slash composer slash um committee member chair of the association how do you balance all of these things and maintain your musical identity throughout that i actually think that all of those things are my musical identity Ah. and (laughs) that yeah so every bit of life experience is what gives what brings you to where you are right now and you know even the things that you didn't like so much (laughs) (laughs) you know there's plenty of them associated with um, musical education yes (laughs) Uh, but they you know, you get to a, a place where you've come, you know, you come to terms with it and you go, okay, well, so, you know, I know that that's not something that I engage with and that is part of who you are. It's part of your understanding of yourself and there are, you know, music things musically that you've decided that mm, I don't think that that actually suits me right now, even though it did back then and... It's not that you're um, turning your back on it other than that's now informing the next part of who you are and what you're doing right now. And I actually think that the training in music performance, like improvisation and this whole sort of aesthetic that I developed is just as present when I play music as it is when I cook dinner wow. <laughs> in that, you know, I, I pick up something and I do something with it. I, you know, I, I use the skills that I have, that I have, and they manifest in a, in a whole bunch of different ways. 
um, the conversation that we're having now is because of all of the things that I've done, including all of the things that I've been cooking and yeah. <laughs> the work that I do in the kitchen, you know, every morning. It's kind of part of a a whole mm, life journey, I suppose. That really ties in with what you were saying earlier about looking at the wider context and the whole picture of everything mm. that's going in. I really like that. It's mm. a lovely, lovely sentiment to end Thoughts on. Thoughts you. <laughs> mm. It makes me feel quite happy not to play the tunes that I studied at college and not to play the compositions that are on my recordings because they all, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm neglecting them. Yeah. I feel like they've done their bit in bringing me to where I am now. Wow. Um, and so what I choose to play now is an evolution out of that. It's mm. informed by that history. And yeah, some of the, the, you know, those particular things I won't play again. Um, you know, I went through a time where I felt a bit sad about that, but mm. actually it's fine because I don't play them because I'm choosing instead to engage with something else that is more suited to where I am right now. That is, you know, at that time, they were reflective of who I was and there's something about that which doesn't still resonate with me because what I want to play now is reflective of who I am now. Mm. And the fact that I'm choosing something different is a sign that I've moved on from when I did that recording five years ago or when I did that study 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no more studies. Please. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and have a chat with us. It's been, yeah, really great hearing... Um, all about the different aspects of Alexander Technique and just some of your philosophies in general are really mm, inspiring. And I know I'll be definitely be thinking about my posture a bit more <laughs> going back to primary control. <laughs> Thank you for the chat. It's been wonderful. Well, that was our chat with pianist, composer and Alexander Technique teacher, Jeremy Woolhouse. If you are based in Melbourne and are interested in getting to know a bit more about the Alexander Technique, Jeremy has a number of different events coming up over the next couple of months. So on the 1st of May, he has a short course in pain management and injury prevention for musicians, one that I can highly recommend. On the 5th of May, he has a workshop in Alexander Technique for musicians. On the 2nd of June, he has a workshop in Alexander Technique specifically for pianists. And on the 5th of June, he has, he'll be starting a five-week short course on performance confidence for musicians. So if you'd like to book into any of those workshops or if you'd like some more information about Alexander Technique or Jeremy, you can visit his website, which is www.poisealexandertechnique.com.au. That's poise, P-O-I-S-E. And we'll post a link to that on our social media accounts. And you can always also email us at iusedtoplaypodcastgmail.com for more information as well. So you all know what time it is. It's that time that everyone loves. It's scale of the episode. <laughs> oh, we could go episode. Oh, yeah. Do it up, video. Episode. <laughs> so, because for once Dan is live with us here, mm. he has very kindly 
not begrudgingly at all, offered <laughs> to play Scale of the Month. Now, we suggested that he could just play anything and we have to guess what it is. Oh, oh dear. Yep. Let's go. Go for it. That's a mode. A mode? Is it a mode? It is a mode, yes. But it's not a mode of the major scale. It's a mode of the harmonic minor scale. So it's... I'm going to say Phrygian. You're very close. It's the Phrygian dominant scale, uh, which is the same as Phrygian except it has a sharp three. Right. So it is the fifth mode of the harmonic minor scale, as in if you play a harmonic minor scale starting on the fifth, then that's, that's what it is. Yeah. But it's probably most well known for being associated with Spanish music and klezmer music or Israeli right. Jewish music. So in those two... Uh, I suppose nationalities or that that national sound, you'll get a lot of that scale. Ah, there you go. There you go. Entertaining. Well, you know. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Awesome. So that was great. Nice <laughs> to have a bit of a different variation rather than your standard scales that Zara and I only know. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners at home, go out and learn that. Yes. Um, learn it's that scale, and feel free to send us a little, you know. Instagram story of you playing that. We'd love to see you all yeah, playing a scale of the month. Um, you can hashtag it scale of the month or scale of the episode or scale of the infrequent episode and <laughs> <laughs> non-specified period of time. Um, thank you once again for listening. Thank you to our special guest for the episode, Jeremy Woolhouse. Yeah, it was great to have him on board. Absolutely. Um, thank you to, I guess we should thank Vic Opera because we are recording part of this episode at Horty Hall. Yes. Yes. Which is very good. Very, um, very kind. Yes, mm. so we should mention that Ioana works for Big Opera <laughs> and um, puts on a whole bunch of wonderful programs. Is there anything you need to plug for Big Opera? Uh, well, if you are a music teacher and you're looking for a great program for your primary school students, you should get on board um, the Access All Areas program that we've got starting up in May. So this year it will be, I think I've talked about the program in the past, um, so it's the program that live streams four workshops into your classroom ahead of watching a performance about education opera. Opera, I should say. <laughs> this year we are doing Alice Through the Opera Glass, which is basically just a bit of a pastiche production of different works in um, the opera repertoire. And Alice and the White tra Rabbit travelled through opera land to, uh, and meet different like Cute. Popular, <laughs> popular characters and hear them sing their popular songs. So nice. Um, it's it's really cool. We're going to be exploring lots of different elements of opera production in the four workshops, and we'll be learning a little bit of French, German, and Italian. We're learning about the different operas. There's a whole bunch going on. So um, check out the website at on Victorian Opera Access All Areas live stream live stream program, um, and feel free to get in touch with me if you need any more information. And how can people get in touch with you? They can send me an email. My email address is on the website, um, or they can call my mobile or my um, work phone, which is also all the information is on the website. Great. And what's the website? www.victorianopera.com.au forward slash Access All Areas. I think. Google Great. Access All Areas. I'm pretty sure it'll come up. Big Opera <laughs> Access All Areas. <laughs> Good work, Joanna. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. That really helps us to share the message and get more listeners. Um, please also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Um, we are on Facebook at I Used to Play Piano and 
on Instagram at I used to play piano too. Yes. Or you can email us if you have something to say, if you'd like to get in touch, if you'd like to ask about any of the things that we've talked about, if you have any recommendations, or if you have a story that you'd like to share, particularly one related to Alexander Technique. It would be nice to hear from anyone who might have had an experience studying it or using it in their practice as well. Um, you can always email us directly at I used to play podcast at gmail.com. Great episode. Great to get back into it. Yes. Um, we're back. We are we're back. back. We're back. Number two. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> we're CPE back. CPE back. <laughs> Not <James>. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, enjoy your music. And share, share everything with us. We want to hear from you. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. <laughs>